Good morning. I'd like you to join me in your Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A familiar word around our house is renovation. We started a little project at the end of last summer. I told Lisa, I said, well, we'll switch the house from sort of country look to contemporary. That turned into about a 10-month total home makeover. And if you come to our house now, which we're planning to have an open house if we ever finish it, when you come in our house, you will notice that it's the same old house with a door in a new place, new countertops, new paint, new appliances, new flooring. It is not, as the advertisers say, new and improved. It is old and improved. That's what renovation means, to restore to its former state. We also spent the past few weeks searching for and then moving Lindsay into an apartment in St. Louis. She is starting nursing school at Barnes Hospital. And in talking to the landlords around there, they refer to the area around Forest Park and Central West End as sketchy. Some of the buildings are restored, some are not. Some of the neighborhoods are restored, and some are not. You can be in a lovely, safe, upgraded, renovated area and drive only six blocks, and it looks like a war zone. And I don't know about you, but I don't want my daughter riding her bike through a drug deal. So we had to find a place that was renovated. Restoration, renovation, improvement are popular terms today. We have city improvement, community improvement, home improvement, self-improvement. Self-help or self-improvement is a buzz phrase in our generation. In fact, I saw a stat that said that self-improvement, the self-improvement market in the United States is worth $9.6 billion. That includes infomercials, seminars, books on how to fix yourself, how to restore yourself to your previous condition. And sadly, what I have observed over the years is that the Christian community tends to copy the world. And so when you walk in a Christian bookstore today, what sells? Self-help books, sprinkled with a few verses, promoting self-esteem, and improving self-image. One of the most popular exercises proposed by self-help gurus is the mirror activity. They suggest that you stand in front of a mirror every morning. Some suggest you do so naked. I'm not sure why, they didn't say. Stand in front of a mirror and follow these four steps. Number one, say your name, in case you forgot. Number two, appreciate yourself. Repeat your achievements. Give yourself positive affirmations. Number three, say I love you. And number four, receive it and breathe. And the stated goal is to replace your negative self-talk with with positive self-talk. In fact, they suggested... Uh, a proposed script 
I would stand in front of the mirror and say, good morning, Danny. Wow. Am I glad to see you. You're looking fantastic today. You seem to be getting younger looking every day. I love and respect you because you're a wonderful person and a wonderful friend. I know that you are capable of achieving anything you put your mind to. Someone pointed out to me, I've been walking around with Hall's cough drops in my pocket because this has been a rough year for allergies, and somebody pointed out to me that on the Hall's wrappers, there are statements of affirmation. So I looked, and sure enough, conquered today. It's yours for the taking. Flex your can-do muscle. Bet on yourself. Inspire envy. Put your strut on. Why am I carrying cough drops? Because I'm sick. So they say, put the cough drop in your mouth, read this little wrapper, and conquer the world. You say, well, Dan, what's the big deal? What's wrong with a little self-esteem? Well, let me reiterate what I said last time. The first sin ever committed was the sin of self-elevation, self-exaltation, when Satan said, I will make myself like the Most High. Satan's initial lie that led to the first human sin was, you will be like God. And I propose to you that Satan's most common primary lie today is the lie of self-exaltation. Because he knows that if he can get you to focus on yourself, to think that the power is in you, to think that it's all in you and all you need is a little self-motivation, a little self-stimulation, a little self-elevation. You know what? You won't depend on God. And you will not think you need God. In fact, you will not think you need salvation. You will just think you need a little jump start. And the point I want to make today is there is no way to Christianize self-help. There is no way to Christianize self-improvement. There is no way to Christianize self-esteem. Because God's plan is the total opposite of that. God's plan is self-denial. God's plan is self-death. God's formula is I must increase, he must, I must decrease, he must increase. In fact, listen carefully. God's plan is not renovation. God's plan is resurrection. God doesn't want to patch you up and give you a new paint job. He wants to make you an altogether new creation in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says old things are restored. No. Old things are passed away. All things are become what? New. That's why you don't hear Paul promoting self-esteem. He says in Romans chapter 7, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. What? Nothing. There is nothing salvageable in my flesh. He says in other places, I am the least of the apostles. I am not fit to be called an apostle. I am the chief of sinners. 
Referring to himself and Apollos in 1 Corinthians 3, 7, he says, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 11, the last four words, he says, I am a nobody. Would that book sell? How to be a nobody by the Apostle Paul. If we heard someone say that today, we are conditioned to correct them. Oh, no, you're not a nobody. You're somebody. And we try to build up their self-image, their self-esteem. Let me ask you something. Are you correct to correct them? Paul says, I'm a nobody. And God didn't correct him. He was a nobody. Isaac Watts wrote the great hymn, At the Cross. It's in our hymn book, number 323. This great line comes out. It's, in, it's a question because he's so befuddled by it. He says, alas... And did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Would He devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Over the years, Christians didn't like that term worm. I mean, if you call somebody a worm, that's kind of derogatory. It's kind of negative. I mean... How do you build self-esteem into a worm? If you're a worm, you're going to get stepped on. So what happened? It changed the words. And if you look at our hymn book, the words have been changed. A worm has been taken out. And instead it says, to sinners such as I. Guess what happened? People didn't like to be called sinners either. So it's been changed in a lot of the modern versions to read, such a one as I. What's the problem? We don't like to be called worms. We don't like to be called sinners. We don't like to be called nobody because we want to renovate ourselves and build ourselves up and make ourselves somebody. I would tell you this this morning. Paul would be very happy with the word worm. Because Paul says, I am a nobody. But what I want to show you is the paradox in this verse. Because look again at verse 11. I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though... I am a nobody. Paul says, I am a nobody who is not inferior. Now, how can Paul say he's not inferior? Well, I want you to notice here, he's not comparing himself with other people. That's wrong. I don't say I'm not inferior because I'm better than you. He says, I'm not inferior to literally the super apostles. And he's talking about the false teachers who had come into this city with their Hall's cough drop wrappers 
strutting in and saying they were somebody. Paul's comparing himself with them, but notice he's not comparing himself with them. He's comparing his gift with them. He's saying, I have the gift of apostle, and they're coming in claiming the gift of apostle, which they don't actually have. So, the question I want to look at this morning is, how can Paul say, I am a nobody who's not inferior? How can Paul say, I'm a nobody who is somebody? Where does he get his somebodiness from? Or to make it more personal for us, how can you be a nobody who is somebody? Well, Paul goes on in this passage to highlight three things about his gift that make him superior to these false teachers. It was done in God's power, by God's pattern, for God's purpose. And I want us to take special note of this this morning because these are the three things that make a nobody somebody. First of all, it's in God's power. Look at verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. Even in the apostolic age, all the Christians didn't perform miracles. That was something unique to the apostles. And that's why Paul says here, it is the evidence, it is the verifying mark of an apostle. If you go back to the book of Acts, you'll see in Acts chapter 3 that Peter healed a crippled man at the gate in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 5, wherever Peter's shadow fell on a person, he was healed. In Acts chapter 9, Peter raised Dorcas from the dead. It wasn't everybody, it was the apostles. In Acts chapter 14, the crowds who witnessed Paul's miracles at Lystra thought he was a god. In Acts chapter 20, Paul brought Eutychus back to life. Paul says the mark of an apostle is three terms, signs, wonders, miracles. Now, these are not three separate kinds of signs. They are three separate angles that you can look at the same thing. He says they are signs. What does a sign do? It shows people something. You put up a sign because you want it to be seen. And the idea here is that the sign is evident for all to, be, to see. Secondly, it's called wonders, and that's the response. It evoked awe when somebody saw it. It was evident to be seen, and when people saw it, they went, wow. And then thirdly, he calls it miracles, which refers to the source. It's supernatural. It's from God. In fact, if you look at this verse carefully, it's interesting how Paul words this verse because he doesn't say, I did signs and wonders and miracles. He says, signs and wonders and miracles were done among you. By who? By God. He's very clear to give God the credit because it is a miracle wrought by God. And so he's saying, God confirmed the fact that I am an apostle by doing and demonstrating his power through me. Now this raises a question. Are there apostles today? There are a lot of people around today who claim to be apostles. If you do a search on the internet, in Cape Girardeau, you'll find people who call themselves apostles. Are there apostles today? 
In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, we're told that the church is God's house, and it's built upon the foundation of the apostles. We're renovating our house. We're not laying a new foundation to do that. The foundation is laid once. And the foundation of the church is the apostles laid once. And we're building on that foundation. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 22, when they got together in the early church to replace Judas as an apostle, one of the requirements was he had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. How many people today are an eyewitness of the resurrection? I'll help you. Zero. In Jude chapter 17, listen to this wording. Remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles. He doesn't say, listen to the words that are still being said by the new apostles. They were spoken beforehand by the apostles. In Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14, in the New Jerusalem, we're told there are 12 foundation stones with the the names of the 12 apostles. How many apostles are there? There are 12. How many apostles will there be in the New Jerusalem? Twelve. And here he tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, that a person who is an apostle is authenticated by miraculous signs. And Paul, who tells us he's a nobody, is one of those guys because it's God's power who works through him. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you operate in God's power? You say, well, I don't know. Well, let me help you a little more. What is the prerequisite for operating in God's power? You have to say with the Apostle Paul, I am a nobody. Because if you still think you're a somebody, then you're going to think that you can do something in your power to make a difference. If you still think you're somebody, then you're going to think that you can renovate and improve and upgrade yourself, and that's what you'll try to be doing in other people's lives. The only thing you can do is on a physical plane. You can't do supernatural things. You can't do eternal things. You can't accomplish spiritual things. Only God can do that. And the prerequisite for God working through you is that you have to be a a nobody. You have to apply the principle in verse 10. When I am weak, then am I strong. That's the paradox of the Christian walk. It's when I am weak that I become strong because God's power works through me. Let me show you a verse. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. I find that husbands love this verse because they really don't understand it. In fact, maybe I should use this verse on Father's Day. We'll come in and, and explain it to you, and you won't love it so much. 
But we love this little phrase that our wife is weaker. Some of us like to throw that in her face. Say, see, the Bible says you're weaker. And how do we like to interpret that? I'm strong and you're weaker. Did you ever see the movie Smart and Dumber? That wasn't it, was it? It was Dumb and Dumber. If she is weaker, what are you? Weak. You are weak and weaker. That's who you are. There's nobody strong in ourselves. The key to strength is to be weak so that God can bring His power through us. In fact, while you're in 1 Peter 3, look at 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That verse tells us every Christian has a spiritual gift. Paul's was apostle, yours is not. But you have a gift. Here's how to use it, verse 11. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as the one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now there are two categories of gifts. There's a gift of speaking, and there's a gift of serving. Whatever gift you have falls in one of those two categories. You may have a speaking gift where you teach, or a gift of evangelism, or a gift of exhortation. Those are spoken words. Or you may have a gift of service where you serve other people in practical ways. Whatever gift you have falls into these two categories. And Paul says, if your gift, or Peter says, if your gift is to speak then you are to make it God's words speaking through you. If your gift is to serve, it's to be God's power that's enabling you to do that. I have people come up to me and say, I don't want to give you the big head, but that was a good message. You really don't have to worry about giving me the big head. Because if I get the big head, it's my problem. Because I know that when I speak... The more I get out of the way, the better the message is. The more I am empty of myself, the more God can work through me. The more I am weak, the more God can show up in his strength. See, my goal is not that you walk away saying, what a great preacher. My goal is that you walk away saying, what a great God. That's a little man with a big God. That's a weak man with a strong God. That's it. When you serve somebody else with your gift, do they walk away saying, what a great guy? They shouldn't. Or do you make it clear that it's God's power in you and they walk away saying, what a great God. What a gracious God. What a generous God. First is in God's power. Second principle is by God's pattern in verses 13 to 18. Come back to 2 Corinthians 12 and notice verse 13.
For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now Paul says, if if I'm inferior, then that would mean you're getting inferior treatment. And he gets a little sarcastic here, and he says, in what way are you inferior? None. Except that I wasn't a burden to you. When he says I wasn't a burden to you, what he means is I didn't come and take your money. I didn't come in and ask you to give me money. I was not a burden to you. And then sarcastically he says, forgive me. Excuse me for treating you that way. And then he goes on in verse 14 and says, here for this third time I'm ready to come to you and I will not be a burden to you. I'm coming for the third time and I'm going to follow the same pattern. I refuse to be a burden to you. Why? Well, he gives two reasons here in verse 14. The first reason, he says, for I do not seek what is yours, but you. I'm not after your stuff. I'm not after your money. I'm after you. I don't want you to give your stuff to me. I want you to give yourself to God. That's my goal. And then he gives a second reason at the end of verse 14. For children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. Paul views himself as the parent here and them as the children. Children don't open savings accounts for their parents. At least mine never have. Parents tend to open savings accounts for their children. And Paul says, that's the way I've treated you. And then notice verse 15, and this is the heart of it. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. Paul says, my interest is not getting what you have. My interest is spending. Paul says, I'm going to spend my money, my time, my energy, my health. I'm going to spend whatever it takes for what? For your souls. What's a soul worth? Jesus said, what profit is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? See, when you talk about purpose, Paul says, my purpose is your souls. And I will spend all that I have, and I will be spent all that I am. And then he adds this at the end of verse 15. If I love you more, Am I to be loved less? Or some translations put that into a statement. Even though I love you more, you love me less. Which tells us what? It's unconditional. I'm going to love you whether you love me back or not. So Paul's love is sacrificial. I will spend and be spent. It is unconditional even if you love me less. Does that remind you of anybody? Whose pattern is that? That's God's pattern. God spent the most he could spend. He sent his son. He died in our place. And he loves us unconditionally, even when we don't love him back. And so Paul says, I am operating in God's power, and I am following God's pattern. I'm trying to treat you exactly the way. He treated me and he treats you as well. And then he adds this in verse 16. 
a little qualification. He says, but be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Now here Paul is, is saying that even though he didn't take their money, he's being accused of a more sinister plot, and that is he sent other people to take their money. So he has to explain that in verses 17 and 18, and he does so very simply. Notice, certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those who, have, who I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? So what's he saying? I sent these two guys, Titus and, and the brother. He's mentioned back in chapter 8 and verse 18. He says, we all came in the same spirit and the same steps. We were the same inwardly and the same outwardly. They followed my pattern. I followed God's pattern. And the pattern was that of sacrificial, unconditional love. Spending myself for your souls. Are you a nobody who is somebody? Then you'll follow God's pattern. You will pay the price. Sacrificially, you will spend and be spent. Unconditionally, you will love even more when someone loves you less. And then the priority is their souls. Not their money, not their self-esteem, it's their souls. Which brings us to the third point, and that is God's purpose in verses 19 to 21. Notice verse 19. All this time, you have been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ, and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Paul qualifies this and says, I'm not defending myself in front of you because you're not my judge. God is my judge. Let me put this in perspective. You are my beloved, and what is Paul's purpose for them? You see the word at the end of the verse? It is upbuilding. Building up spiritually. That is the goal of all spiritual gifts. And then Paul says something very interesting in the last two verses of this chapter. He begins them both the same way. I am afraid. Now, you rarely find Paul afraid, but he's afraid at the end of this chapter. Notice what he's afraid of. First of all, in verse 20, For I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find, that you, I may find you to be not what I wish and may be found by you to be not what I wish. When I get there, I may find out that you're not what I wish you are, which is what? Built up. Instead, you're going to be fleshly. And you're going to find me to be not what you wish because I'm not going to be a father who is bringing the bank account. I'm going to be a father who is bringing discipline. Why? Look at the list of things he talks about here, the characteristics. He talks about strife which is quarrels, struggling to get gain for myself. Jealousy is desiring what other people have for myself. Angry tempers is harbored jealousy that erupts. Disputes are factions, rivalries, selfish cliques and groups. Slander means literally to speak against. That's when I tear someone else down so that I can build up my self-image. And then the word gossip, 
is one of those interesting words in the Greek. It's one of those onomatopoeia words. You remember that? They, it sounds like what it is. Listen to this word in the Greek, gossip. It's sithesisimos. It's that whispering sound that comes out because that's what gossip is. It's whispering behind somebody else's back. Then he mentions arrogance, to puff up with pride, to build up your self-esteem. And disturbances is the idea of a state of anarchy or revolution, the idea that the church is being torn apart. Paul says, I want to come and see you built up, but I'm afraid that when I come, I'm going to find that you are fleshly instead. And then he mentions another fear. And by the way, those sins in verse 20 are all relational sins. And then he has another fear in verse 21. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. And I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the immorality, impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Instead of being pleased with your progress, Paul says, my fear is that I will be humiliated. Instead of rejoicing, my fear is that I will mourn. Why? And here he mentions not relational sins, but sexual sins. Impurity, immorality, sensuality. And what is his fear? That you will commit those sins and not repent. Now let me show you something. Turn in your Bible a few pages to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and notice verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are these. Immorality, impurity, sensuality. Didn't we just read those? Yeah. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this. All the things he's just listed, here he gives us the source. And what is the source? These are the deeds of the flesh. And Paul's purpose is to build us up Spiritually, how does he do that? Stand in front of a mirror and say wonderful things to yourself? No. Look again at this passage. Look at verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You are to acknowledge, if you are a Christian, that your flesh has been crucified. Now, if it's been crucified, what is it? Dead. If it's dead, how much good is in it? Zero, none, nothing. That's why I can say I am a nobody, because in my flesh, I am a nobody. I am already dead in Christ. My old, that's what we saw the picture of this morning. Baptism. You go in, under the water in death and burial and come up as a new person in Christ. The old is passed away. All things are new. So Paul says, death to the flesh. And then notice verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. My flesh is dead, and how do I walk now? I walk by the Spirit of God. And what does the Spirit of God do inside of me? Well, look at verse 
22 and 23, he says he produces the fruit of the Spirit, those godly characteristics that only God can produce in you. So the key is not to build yourself up in self-esteem. The idea is to realize that you are a nobody apart from Jesus Christ. And to realize that you need to die to your flesh, die to yourself so that you can walk in the power of the Spirit of God and what he does is produces his life in you and his life is evident by the fruit that it produces in you. Love, joy, peace. So let me close this morning by asking you another question. Have you got yourself in proper perspective? Can you say with Paul, I am a nobody who is somebody because I am operating in God's power by God's pattern for God's purpose which is to build people up how? by self-improvement? no by self-restoration? no by self-crucification crucification? Good word. Go with it. You know, somebody said that God's power operates best in cemeteries because God's power is resurrection power. And if you want God's power to flow through you, you've got to get yourself in the cemetery. I think the problem is that a lot of us God wants to work his power through us, his resurrection power through us, and the problem is most of us won't lay down. We're walking around acting like we got it all together. He wants to work his power through you, and there's only one way to do that. When you realize that in Christ, your flesh has been crucified, and you lay down, you give up, you say, I am weak, I am a nobody. God, I need you to work through me and to accomplish your purposes. We're going to close our service today by taking communion. We're going to be reminded of what it costs God to redeem us, to work his resurrection power in us. It was the death of Jesus Christ. And we're going to take the bread today and the cup today and remember his cross and what he sacrificed on our behalf. And as we do so, I would challenge you today to honestly say to God, I'm a nobody. I've got nothing to offer you. I need you to come and take over my life and make me altogether new in Christ and allow your power to work through me to accomplish your eternal purposes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this bread and this cup, simple reminders of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus sacrificed in our place. Lord, we are hopeless and helpless without you. Thank you for the paradox of the cross that by your death and your conquering the grave, we have a promise that we will rise also. But even in this life, we have the promise that you want to work your resurrection power through us. Lord, cause us to lay down. Cause us to give up. Cause us to surrender completely to you, to allow you to operate the way you want to operate in and through us, 
to your total glory in Jesus Christ.